0: Welcome to the second edition of that 90s baseball pod. I am your host, Brandon Warren. You can find me on Twitter at Brandon underscore W A R N E. And I am joined again by my co-host. You know him as the 14 season nine team. Zero MLB starts, but one of the best curveballs of all time relievers. You can find him on Twitter at Greg with two G's at the end. Olson 30. Mr. Greg Olson, how are we doing today?
1: We're doing good. That is another uh... New thing I've never heard. Zero starts in his career. That would be me.
0: Yeah. Uh, that's
1: that's pretty funny.
0: Well, well done. The curve the curve was great. And we talked about last week. You thought you had a chance to start one game when I I'm trying to remember who was warming up in the pen. And then uh, I think it was a Royal, maybe. Kevin <sighs>
1: Apier. Kevin
0: Apier, yeah. Long time. I almost said Brett Saberhagen, but that would have been a little bit different of a a former Royal, but. Yeah, so you had your chance just about and didn't happen, but again, still a very good, accomplished, and decorated career. I mean, 14 years as a reliever is a very long time, and we're excited to have you. If you haven't gone back and listened to the first episode, I would highly recommend it. Get to know Greg, I think, quite a bit better in terms of what he's about, what he's up to, and what he's accomplished in the game both during and since, which is uh, a whole lot of fun. I enjoyed the first episode, Greg. I hope you did as well.
1: No, I did. I did. It was uh, well done by you. Good questions, and and um, looking forward to doing this some more.
0: Well, and hopefully we can keep the good vibes rolling. We have, uh, again, that 90s baseball pod brought to you by Humility Chains, Hinterland Coffee, and three-star sports cards in Bloomington, Minnesota. Go check them out for all your sports card needs. you ever get into sports cards at all, whether it was as a kid or playing or since? I know they've blown up here in the post or rather during COVID era. But I know I grew up collecting cards and and had a lot of fun with it. How about you? I
1: did. Uh, Okay. So what were your years of cards when you got started?
0: My first year, the first pack that I ever got was 1993. I want to say Don Russ probably. And then – Okay uh tops was a big one i I, in fact recently in the last couple years bought the entire 1993 tops set my favorite card of that one is kirby Puckett with a huge baseball bat Uh, i found a Derek jeter rookie in there which has gained value since this whole thing has popped up but i would i would say i identify with 93 tops maybe the most and then don russ from it was either 92 or 93 and i want to say it was 93 i can i can remember uh pulling a tim salmon rookie card which i thought was a pretty cool deal at the time
1: yeah very good okay um, I, I collected as a kid and uh you know vivid memories and it was only really only tops mm-hmm. uh, back in the back in the 70s when you're 10 11 12 and I don't know if you get a quarter if we got a quarter to go to the concession stand and you could either get you know gum or get something else and I'd always get a pack of baseball cards and and go rifling through it and that was the era of, you know, the great Yankees teams of the seventies and the, mm-hmm. and the big red machine. And so always looking for a, a Johnny Bench or Pete Rose, uh, probably a Reggie conception conception Reggie. Yeah. So always looking for those guys, but, uh, I got started then. Nice. Didn't really do it very much in high school. And then for some reason, my roommates in college started doing it. So in 87, Started, and that would have been my sophomore year in college, started throwing together some sets, and it was mainly Donruss and Tops. and uh remember the 88 set with um, Greg Jeffries and Greenwell, and mm-hmm. uh, who else did we have in that squad?
0: Boy, they thought so, they, they thought Jeffries was going to be a huge deal.
1: He, The dude could play. It, it was, was just, good. you know, yeah, I mean, I, I, I always laugh now because I'll get somebody that will send me a hundred of my, my tops are Donruss rated, rated rookie. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was my rated rookie. They'll send me a hundred of them going, you know, hope, you know, enjoy these. Um, I bought a bunch of them when, you know, your rookie year. And I was like, yeah. And I didn't pan out. So now they're not worth anything. So you might as well just send them to me. Well, it's fine. It's not, it's a nice gesture. It's just, yeah, you know what? You gambled and you missed, and I kind of look at Greg Jeffries going, man, he was a great player, mm-hmm. just didn't make didn't make the Hall of Fame. So his cards, ten or fifteen cents, and that's what you got.
0: So we didn't really cover this in the first episode, but are you still a Nebraska native? We talked before the show started, and you're in Central Time Zone, so I, I knew you were somewhere in this area, but uh, have you remained close to the motherland?
1: Uh, no, I actually last time of living in nebraska was my uh senior year in high school oh wow i moved out played played baseball at auburn for three years and then maryland lived in baltimore for 11 most Mm -hmm. of my career there um then signed with the dodgers moved out to southern california for about 20 years and have just since uh, about three years ago moved back to auburn alabama
0: nice so uh, yeah so you were talking about that late 70s Yankees team. Actually, my wife and I, this is a brief aside. We've been watching some of the Son of Sam documentaries on Netflix. And the <laughs> contemporary to that, as, as far as I recall, was ESPN had a miniseries called The Bronx is Burning. And that was kind of, um, you know, what was going on with the Yankees at that time. And it was kind of a tumultuous time with Reggie and his stardom and, and all that going on with the boss and all that. So... I think I'm gonna have to go back and watch that and, um, kind of get a better grasp of the context of the time because, um, it was, it was an interesting time to be a Yankee, I think in the late seventies and probably for you as a fan watching the Yankees back then as well.
1: Well, I was never a fan of the Yankees. It was just, they were, you know, 77, 78, it was the Reds, it was the Yankees, it was the Dodgers and, um. You just idolize, you know, you know, I'm forgetting the Red Sox, but uh,
2: mm-hmm. you
1: just idolize those guys as a, a 10-year-old kid or a 12-year-old kid that wanted to be in the major leagues. You, you you, watch the game of the week. So for all those young listeners out there, we didn't have Monday Night Baseball, Sunday Night Baseball. We didn't have MLB TV. We had a game of the week on Saturday and a game of the week on Sunday. And the game of the week was never – you know the worst two teams of the league. It was the Yankees and the Dodgers. You know, obviously, no interleague play back then, so right. it was the Yankees and the Red Sox, or the Dodgers and the Giants. You know, some mm-hmm. great series. And so those are the only guys you, you knew to watch, man. Sure. Before before TV started breaking out a little bit, Notre Dame was the only football game in town on Saturdays. Other than you, you might catch Nebraska on a you know Oklahoma game. Um, and so the only guys we ever got to watch were Yankees, Dodgers, Giants, you know, Red Sox. I can't think of anybody else, to be honest with you. Braves obviously had their uh,
0: superstation, yeah. their
1: own network in the in the uh, in the early '80s, but '70s. Man, it was just the game of the week, and that was all you got.
0: Well, and there wasn't fantasy baseball to keep people interested too. I don't think that started to pop up until. Uh, mid or late 80s, well, you know, right around the time you came through. So yeah, that's a, that's a well-taken point that I'm sure even some of the listeners who watched 90s baseball and hopefully are interested in this podcast might not have realized how things were different even just a decade or, or slightly over a decade before that. Um, one thing I want to ask you before we get into today's topic is what was it like to see yourself on a baseball baseball card for the first time? And do you recall the exact instance i'm not talking about like hey do you remember where you were when the space shuttle was launched or anything like that but do you have a (laughs) a, even a vague a vague recollection of holy smokes i mean for guys now it might be being in a video game or 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 something like that but back then i have to imagine being on a baseball card was was pretty cool
1: no man that was that was that was it um i do i was Let's see. I was with my fiance. We went home after the season back to Omaha, Nebraska, and I went to visit my grandmother in Fremont, Nebraska, which is about 30 minutes Northeast. And somehow, I don't know how it was, because we didn't have internet that I found out that, you know, the cards had come out, um, and the new set for the next year. So it was obviously November, give or take a month. And we, so we ran over to the nearest, um, Walgreens or whatever it was. And I think I might've bought a box of tops just looking for the, um, you know, the uh, 89 Auburn baseball card that ended up being my rookie card. And uh, I think we found one and it, and it was, it was a pretty cool moment.
0: Yeah. No question about that. Do you, do you have any of the cards you collected from when you were younger? Have those all been lost to, um, are, are they hit? Are they history now? See, for my, <laughs> my instance, <laughs> my house flooded when i was 16 so everything that i've gotten i've gotten since i was in basically college and i mean i didn't have a crazy collection i had a substantive collection but it wasn't like i lost kirby puckett and ken Griffey jr rookies or anything but i I still do have uh plenty of cards they're just not from back in the day so to speak
1: i found yeah so we uh moved to auburn and found a shoebox you know real well kept you know conditioned yeah um these cards were just 1975-76 pretty much trashed had been traded and flipped and flicked and everything else but i did find a shoebox full of those and that ended up being my uh childhood collection but Mm -hmm. i still have i still have a good stack of the boxes that we collected in college
0: so yeah, well, maybe one day in the late 80s. we can jump on a a video call and do a Zoom and maybe do an episode where we open packs from uh from the 90s and maybe we split them up. I send you some <laughs> and then uh the winner the winner is whoever opens a Greg Olson card first. I think that would be kind of fun.
1: That would be entertaining. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be pretty good. I I don't uh I got a couple unopened boxes. I did this did a couple of the sets. Of oh the, yeah. Once I got uh, into the league, I got a couple of sets of sure. 89, 90.
0: I don't, uh, I don't know if I got 93s, but have to take a look. They're harder to find now than ever before, and I don't know how much it is affecting buying up old stock, but I know new cards. I mean, Target doesn't carry them anymore because people were literally pushing over little kids to get them. So, don't need to do that. Wow. But yeah, so that's it's a long way of getting to how we were gonna break down today which was the Ripkin family. And I think obviously you have experience with Ripkins at a number of levels. Uh not only Cal Junior, which is kind of the one everyone identifies with, but Cal Senior, who briefly managed the Orioles, not during your time, but was basically a mainstay in that organization for the better part of thirty five years. But even Billy, you had said uh the you you had you had told briefly a bit of Billy Ripken, um, a few Bi- Billy Ripken stories last week. We're going to dive into those a bit more here in depth. But the Ripken family has obviously got to be a big part of how you remember your MLB career, especially since you started with the Orioles. Is that correct?
1: That yeah, is absolutely correct. Um, Billy and Cal and, and even Cal Sr. all had you know, some effect, um, ranging Cal Sr., you know, we'll start with him. Um, I I, I, hate, I hate to use their word crusty, but he was, he had his way of doing things. Obviously, you know, Cal and Billy have both written books on the Ripken way and how things were done. And the Oriole way was basically, you know, Cal Ripken Sr. teaching it in the minor leagues. And there was a way of things getting done. And it was what made the Orioles so effective. And Cal senior, man, he had his way of doing things. And (laughs) he's one of those guys where if you walk by and in the morning, so to try to give you guys a little bit of what it looks like. So we get one day a week. Generally, that's going to be a day game. And so you play six night games in a row. The day game, you get to the ballpark at about 830-ish. And it's hard to fall asleep after a night game. Mm Mm-hmm. No matter what you do, it is impossible to fall asleep. So if I pitch the night before a day game, the adrenaline and everything else, is I'm I'm up till two, three o'clock, you know, there's just no way to fall asleep. So there there aren't a whole lot of happy people at 830 or 9 (laughs) a.m. in the clubhouse. And Cal Senior was one of those. Now, I don't know what Cal Senior was doing, but. Every morning, you'd go walking by him, and it'd be like, morning, senior, and it would be almost the same phrase every day, which would be, what's so deep, good about it, (laughs)
2: and
1: and you're just kind of like, you know, when you're a rookie, and you're 22 years old, and you're walking by Cal Ripken, senior, who's, you know, a legend in the organization, and that's his first retort to you, you're going, he hates me. I'm getting cut <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so that was that was one of the stories I had about Tom Kelly was kind of the same thing I, I made the mistake of saying something that was kind of comical to me and uh, he didn't take it very well and and I walked away going you know and I played in the big leagues for about eight years at that point and I just walked away going oh he's cutting me <laughs> that was great nice job um so Cal senior was was great um very baseball intelligent, very, you could talk to him, but he had his way of doing things. And if you didn't do something right, he had no problem coming up and telling you after a game or the next day, what you didn't do right. And don't ever, you know, I made the mistake of a judgment pitch that was wrong. And he came up to me the next day and he was like, don't ever do that again. Uh And obviously, it cost us the game. It cost us the game the night before, so I had learned that lesson on the field. But he reiterated it, and it was it was one of those moments where there's just not a whole lot of people that can say that in a clubhouse to right. a grown man, you know. And he had zero problem doing it, and I, I appreciated it. And you appreciate it after the fact, but at that moment, you're kind of like, yeah. I I'm really not in a good mood right now, but okay. Um, So that was kind of Cal Senior a little bit. Um, We go through and, and, uh, I mean, Billy, Billy and Cal were both huge. My, 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 you know, I was only there for about five and a half years, and Billy was there for about three and a half or four of them. But those guys my rookie year, when I started getting the ball in meaningful situations, those were the guys that I went to and talked to and asked questions and how do I do this and what am I doing and what do I need to be doing here and how do I do this better? And it wasn't, you know, them teaching me how to throw a curveball. It was, you know, presence on the mound. It was just... You know, most aspects outside of the actual pitching. And a lot of our, I mean, hours, days of conversations were we'd, you know, and I can say this because it's a podcast, but we would meet in the hotel bar or some, you know, hole in the wall down the street and have, have a couple beers and just sit at a bar stool and just, they would talk baseball. And I would sit there and listen. And that was what we did for, like I said, my five and a half years in Baltimore. Every time I went to, it wasn't to go look at women, it was to go talk to the game. And either there was a good place to go that was safe, or else it was a great clubhouse, like old Texas Stadium with the Rangers was right behind our hotel. So we never left the clubhouse. We just sit in the clubhouse and talk baseball for three or four hours, talk the game. And now for all you people that are younger than I am, um, there wasn't a whole lot of ESPN going on either. So there, sure. we didn't have TVs all over the place where every game's on. And if we're in Texas, you know, we can still pick up the Angels or the A's or Seattle's game. You know, Andy Griffith was on TV or something else. It was mm-hmm. There was no baseball to be picked up. And we just sat in the clubhouse till one, two o'clock in the morning, just talking baseball, talking the game that night, talking about, you know, two days ago's game still. Um, and that was how I really kind of got my uh, concept of how the game should be played, how it is played. Um, they, they, These guys were the best and they had no problem every night, just, You know, we're not drinking, we're not drinking to get drunk. We're drinking to have a couple beers and and talk baseball with your friends and your
2: teammates.
0: Yeah, I've always heard about, you know, sipping suds with the boys. And I mean, I don't know if that's oversimplifying it, but if you can't get to sleep anyway, you may as well hang out, do something productive with your time. And I I think that um, that's something that a lot of players from that era tell me is missing with today's game is that kind of – kinship with your teammates so i think that's well taken and it's um it's something that i think the game could use at this point
1: well um you know this this is uh, i'm gonna be as politically correct as i can be Mm -hmm. the game has the game has changed and a lot of it has changed for just the reason you said and the reason that there is no more sitting in the clubhouse having beers with your friends either home or away. And now I understand that if you drink too much or even more than a beer, it's it's not real safe to be driving home. Yeah. But, you know, there's Uber. There's rides. There's, there's, there's ways of getting to your hotel and to home that we didn't have access to. And so the game's changed because – there's been some unfortunate accidents and very unfortunate accidents of, of people driving home after games and getting in car wrecks. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of a couple in particular and they pass and they pass way too early and it's, it's a tragedy. Um, and so teams have reacted the way they probably should have of, of taking the alcohol out of the clubhouse. And so it's, it's a lot harder to, sit down after a game and have a beer with your guys but the other aspect of it is is you don't need alcohol to do that and all the technology all the you know everybody's on their phone you know i've come in the clubhouse as a scout again for the padres and you come in after the game and the clubhouse is gone in, in 15 minutes and guys are on their phones walking out and nobody's going to hang out with each other. It's just the way the world is now. And so you, you lose that camaraderie, which was such a huge part of baseball from, man, 1920 to 2010. It was just that, that was, I mean, for, for everybody that's retired, that was the best part of the game.
0: Yeah, I, I think that it would be great to, to get that back, and there are ways to do that responsibly, whether it's uh, on-site at the stadium or at a nearby watering hole. Um, so we'll, we'll circle back to the Ripkins here, and we'll touch on Cal Ripkin Sr. just briefly, because I know your experience with him was not as much as a manager, of course, but as just the senior figure in the organization. Um, they're, they've got to be without any doubt, the first family of Baltimore baseball. Uh, there's no real denying that. But um, how much does it play into the fact that they're also from that area, area? Uh, Aberdeen? I have no idea how to say the city they're from. Haber Grace, I would guess, but I could be completely wrong. Yeah, you got it. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. Um, you know, it's not entirely unlike Joe Maurer being from Minnesota. There's that added pressure, but also the added payoff of being from there. Uh, how much did their proximity to Baltimore play into what they eventually became as a family uh, in Baltimore?
1: God, that's a great question. Uh, yeah, I mean Cal Ripken was going to be Cal Ripken, right? You know, uh, I I think it probably did more for Billy, I would think it, if the, if anything. Cal Senior was, you know, kind of a behind the scenes organizational figure that, you know, finally got out of the minor leagues and and into the big leagues after, you know, however long he was in the minor leagues. But, you know, Cal and Billy were drug around minor league stadiums all over the East coast as kids. And that was because of Cal senior, uh, Billy, I think Billy became a huge figure just because, you know, Cal and Cal seniors relative nice player. Um, Really nice player. Just you know, I don't think he would have gotten the the status in Baltimore if he was if he had been from Minnesota. So Cal Cal Junior was going to be Cal Junior, no matter if he was from you know Timbuktu or wherever he was from. But it was just a nice bone you know benefit of being from the area. You know, it just those guys could go home. You know, Cal Seniors or Mom buy was you know famous there everybody was famous there so it was it was it was a fun part of it but um yeah i, I think the only one that really benefited was billy
0: did you ever get a sense that cal senior wished his career had gone differently i mean he only played in the minors if i recall correctly from reading a book that cal wrote um when i was a kid i think a foul tip hurt his arm and it just kind of was it for him But then, too, you know, there's a few times where I think he felt kind of passed up in terms of, you know, um, Altobelli getting the managing job, and then he got to manage for one Uh game, and then Earl Weaver on retired. Do you get the sense that he maybe had wished it had gone differently, or was he happy with how his experience in baseball had gone? You know what? He, I
1: think it hurt him. I think it did. He never talked about it, never discussed. I never saw anything about it. Cal and Billy... You know, weren't real happy in a sense with the way things played out. But, you know, for Cal Senior or for any of them to, to say anything out loud, it wasn't, it didn't happen. So, yep. yeah, Cal got, Cal Senior got passed up. Um, it, you know, could have been different. It wasn't his fault, the 0 21 start. He was 0 yep. 6 and got taken out. You know, I got. I was on that team, man. Yeah, we had, we had Cal Ripken, we had Eddie Murray, and not a whole lot else. You know, so it wasn't <laughs> there wasn't a whole lot he could do with, with what they had. They went they went in an organizational path, you know, after the World Championship of, of you know, the way they drafted and and doing some things, and it just wasn't very effective.
0: Yeah, you got gavin sheets pops and a young mickey tattleton and older uh fred lynn but yeah a lot of mishmash of guys that uh either finding their way or on their way out which can can be a difficult road to to travel Uh, as far as personality wise before we move on from cal senior what do you get the sense of how both of those guys turned out as compared to their dad i mean were they similar to him or the complete opposite? You know, if like if you have a strict parent, sometimes it results in a wild child or vice versa. Um, how do you think they were molded in their upbringing from Cal Senior, who, by all accounts, you know, he sounds like he was a, a man set in his ways, which is not uncommon for men built, born in the 30s. You know, they went through a lot. But um, how, how do you get the sense that they he molded their upbringing and made them who they became not only as players, but even to this day?
1: You know what? That's a great question. I don't. uh, I don't see those two traveling too far off of Cal Senior. His path, his way of doing things. I. I think you know, Billy and Cal are very different personalities. But the way they do things, the way they handle issues and stress, was identical. And you could see Cal Senior had you know had his fingerprints all over. The way those two played baseball, the way they talked, the way they reacted, everything was, you know, a lot of what Cal senior did. And so they didn't fall too far apart, even though if you look at both of them, they're exact opposites.
0: As, as far as I recall, you're a coach's kid, correct?
1: I am. My father coached uh, high school 35 years.
0: Yeah, that's right. You mentioned that last week. I don't know why I forgot that. Um, was was there definitely a coach's kid vibe with them that you picked up on or was it more just uh baseball rats who just love the game uh, I, I guess I don't know how much of a difference there is and if that's splitting hairs um you know I can accept that but did you get that coach's kid vibe from them or do you think you ever gave that off as far as uh, who you guys were as players no I don't know
1: um I, I don't I don't see much of a difference and but I mean by definition yeah coaches coach's kid and gym rat are are separate entities, Mm -hmm. but um, in the grand scheme of it, I would think that they're, they're pretty much the same. I don't, I don't know too many coaches kids if it's used in a, in a good way that aren't gym rats that aren't first one in last one to leave. And so, but there are gym rats that aren't coaches kids. And then there are coaches kids that, you know, don't fit the bill and aren't gym rats. So, those guys were gym rats. They were they loved the game, and like I said, you know, hours upon hours of sitting in the clubhouse and just discussing the baseball game of that night. Nothing else. Not not talking about the Rangers. Not talking about the Yankees team. It was just this play here and revisiting it, and how many different ways can we talk? You know, and that was what they did. And so I, I just look at them as gym rats and Cal. Cal and Billy both were first ones there, last ones to leave. Could talk baseball in their sleep. Uh, just ultimately, great teammates, really were. Is uh,
0: is there anything I didn't touch on, Cal-, Cal Senior, before we move on that you'd like to get out there? I, I just want to make sure. You know, he's he's obviously not uh, as well known just because you know he's been he passed away 20 plus years ago and was more of a like you said a behind the scenes figure but is there anything i left out that people should know about cal senior
2: i mean he was he,
1: he was a very kind man it was it was a very rough exterior so you know i, I probably shouldn't <laughs> use crusty i think r- rough exterior is a little bit better and kinder um now nah, you know what it's it's I, I i i think outside of baltimore he's he's not thought of a lot just because of you know, with Cal and Billy both being out of the limelight for the most part, you know, you don't think about their father. But uh, he's, he's thought about quite a bit and thought highly of in, in the Baltimore area. And uh, like I said, very good man.
0: So correct me if I'm wrong, but the perception I got last week was that whether it was right away or later on in your career, you maybe had um, identified or vibed more with Billy than Cal, Cal Jr. Is Is that a good assessment or was it just, uh, you know, like you talked about Buffalo in 95, where you guys were together. Was that more of a, um, uh, of the essence because you were together, you know, how are your relationships different with the brothers?
2: Oh
1: man. I, no, I, I vibe with both of them. Uh, okay. Cal. So I, 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 hurt my elbow in 93 and the Orioles didn't handle it very well, at least in my opinion. And so I, I signed with the Braves. Well, about a year, oh man, it was about a year before that. Cal had, you know, Cal's house in Baltimore was iconic. Everybody knew where he lived and you could, you could give directions off of Cal's house. It was like, you know, those old funny country uh, shows where they're going, okay, go up to where old man McDonald's farm burned down and turn (laughs) right. You know, you, you could go, go to Cal's house and go here and everybody had a pretty good concept of where it was. So I think it was 91, 92 ish Cal added a basketball or three quarters basketball court to the side of his house. And no, this is the kind of guy Cal is. So I signed with the Braves in 94 and I'm not, you know, part of the Orioles anymore. Cal's still with the Orioles and we're going, going around back and forth a little bit. And Cal just, Comes up one day. I think we were playing basketball or doing something, and he goes, "Here's a key to the, the the gym," and it had its own little gate off the off the back side. And he goes, "Here's the gate code. Here's the key to the, the you know the gym." He goes, "Whenever you need to come and go, work out and do anything you need, this is yours." Wow. And that was that was who he was. It was just. One of those, you know, yeah, we played together five and a half years. I I, I think both of them are very good friends of mine. Um, but Cal just, that was Cal. It's like, here's my gym. Here's my gate code. If you need to come at five in the morning, you don't need to tell me. Just turn on the lights, turn off the lights when you leave. And so that was Cal. Billy Billy and I just, you know, had the, had the pleasure of playing together in Buffalo the next year when both of us were, uh 50% of the time miserable with our circumstances
0: and
2: mm-hmm.
1: kind of relied on he kind of relied on each other to continue
0: playing so he went in round 11 in 1982 and while people don't look at his career as fondly because of the shadow that he played in and I don't mean that derisively but just cuz of how great cal was uh, he was actually second in baseball reference wins above replacement from players drafted in that round, which round 11 doesn't always bring that many big leaguers. Um, it was a reliever who actually had more career war. Do you care to hazard a guess of who it might've been? Cause he was, he's kind of a big name and <laughs> still, still involved in baseball, but keeps getting uh, fired from different things.
1: I got no idea. What do you got? Not Rob Dibble,
0: good. Rob Dibble, one of the nasty boys. So, um, Rob Dibble was drafted in 82? Well, it said in the 11th round. Uh, it's very possible in my prep I got too jumbled, but it's uh it's what I saw. So, um like the wow. uh like the umpire on little big league said I saw what I saw. So, um <laughs> <laughs> did, so when uh when did you meet Billy or where was your first path crossing with him because obviously his path to the big leagues was a little different. Did did you get the sense when he went in the 11th round, it was because he deserved to go in the 11th round versus, eh, maybe he's a 15, 18, 20, 35, whatever rounder, but, you know, we like the Ripken family.
1: You know, I would... Um,
0: I don't mean that derisively I either. I would
1: be... No, I know, I'm not taking it that. I, I, I would be hard-pressed to think that the Orioles would take him with the 11th pick. Um, with their 11th pick, if... You know, just because he was a Ripkin, I, I, I it, yeah. it doesn't really work that way. I mean, it, it's situations like that where somebody's getting drafted because they're somebody's kid or somebody's family. You know, we we all kind of look at Mike Piazza in the sixty what second round,
0: yeah, something like that. Just
1: because he because he was Tommy Lasorda's great godson or you know whatever that was, you know, family wise, that's the way. It, 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 if somebody's getting picked up, it's Last round. Yeah. And so to use your team's 11th pick on somebody that is, you know, a Ripken just because, you know, that's what you guys do. It doesn't work that way. It would be, you know, man, back in 1982, it probably been closer to, if he wasn't any good, you'd, you'd pick him up with the 60th round pick and, and throw him out there, you know, and see what he's got and give him a shot. And then if it doesn't work, you throw him away. But you know, that was that was back when he had 70 some rounds and and you could take shots on you know family friends and kids and everybody else because 70 new players every every year coming into the organization's a lot.
0: What, how, how do you think he views his career? Uh, and I I'm gonna try not to focus too much on Cal because Billy deserves more than that. But did it give any undue pressure either from? the fact that Cal senior was such a fixture or Cal junior was such a great player that he had to handle any undue pressure that a, you know, a utility infielder who, who had a, a, a good career. I mean, anybody who makes the big leagues and hangs around for that long deserves to say their career was good. Did he have any undue or unfair pressure on him to be anything more than what he could be?
1: Um, I don't think he did. It, it certainly didn't come from the organization. Okay. It certainly didn't come from his brother. Um, I never saw it coming from his dad. I mean, you know, Billy was an excellent, he'd, you know, he'd be a plus defender. He was the guy that you wanted on your team because he'd lay down a bun, he'd get a guy over, he would, you know, he would tear his labrum diving. And I don't know how many times he was on the DL because, you know, he full on laid out and blew out a shoulder or something. That was, that was the guy he was. So, he wasn't in the big leagues because of Cal. He was in the big leagues because the, the dude could play. He mm-hmm. just wasn't, uh, you know, a, a plus hitter, you know. He was a plus defender, plus baseball player, just was never the plus hitter and didn't have a whole lot of pop, you know, probably a couple home runs a year, I would think, and um, would would hit between 230, 250, And just never make any errors, make all the plays that you needed to make, get the bunt down. He was one of those guys that, um, sad to say, probably wouldn't get drafted now. Well, and I think it's important
0: to note how different the game viewed middle infielders back then. Because Cal Cal Jr. was a a unicorn at that time. Before the shortstop position was redefined by Alex Rodriguez and Nomar Garcia-Para and... Alex Rodriguez, or did I say, uh, I mean, Derek Jeter, A Rod Garcia, yeah. and then uh, I think um, Renteria was even in that mix, too. Uh, before that got redefined, it was totally fine if your shortstop hit 220 as long as they made all the plays. Since they have a shortstop that does that, your second baseman could probably do that, uh, which is to say, too, how awesome would it be to be a double play partner with your own brother? I just feel like, um, you know, the things that people would see as obvious, I think you'd kind of gloss over. You know, holy smokes, I get to turn double plays with my brother for 150 games a year.
1: Yeah, but I mean, the, the best part of it was they really liked each other. You know, they hung around each other. They, there there wasn't a time where, you know, yeah, there might have been something said once in a while, but it was so rare that I, I, I can't remember it. They got along so well together. It was never really thought of as weird that they go, you know, it's, me and three other guys and cal and billy and i can't think of another time that it wasn't cal and billy so that's what probably is more amazing about the whole story is these guys really liked each other and loved playing together and it was just it was it was fun to watch because they always knew where each other was Mm -hmm. and then you know most of the guys when we were you know we had some decent teams in the early, excuse me, early nineties, um, had a, you know, pretty solid team in 89, but it was like, everybody just fell on, fell in step with those two. You know, we didn't have Eddie Murray got traded at the end of 88. So it was really Cal's team and everybody, you know, fell in line. This is the way it's done. This is the way we do it. And if you want to talk baseball, here's where we're at. It was it was it was so much fun. It really was. I can't even describe it, but uh yeah, yeah, you know, you sit there and you gloss over the fact that you're playing middle infield with your brother and yeah. you know, I I just can't stress enough how much they liked each other and hung out and got along and you know, every every game that we did, it was Cal and Billy and, you know, five of five other Orioles. W-
0: without throwing anybody under the bus, did you observe any brother to brother relationships during that era that were different than that i'm thinking you know ozzy canseco chris Gwynn, dan mcguire wouldn't have been as much because he played football but um even craig griffey you know got drafted by the i think it was the mariners but didn't really do much Uh, did you see different brothers react differently and maybe give you more of an appreciation for how how these guys could balance such a disparity in what they were on the field versus off it Oh,
1: man, I I had a set of brothers I played with in high school that were, you know, opposites that were just far enough apart that it was, you know, they didn't really hang out together. I I can't think of... I'm running through it. If I've had another set of brothers, you know, I think it would have been a unique, extremely unique situation for, you know, Griffey Jr. and Sr. Yeah, yeah. That would have been, I mean... (laughs) You know, it's fun because you, you, I'm sitting there and, and I, I can say I'm so old that I played with a father and the son on, on the same team, batting back-to-back, back. and, wow. you know, running through it and going, yeah, I faced Bob Boone and then Brett Boone and then Aaron Boone,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and it, so I, I can't really think of a set of brothers that gave me an example of how it should be other than those two. I just found it fascinating. There, there wasn't really – you know, I don't know how detrimental it would have been if Cal's going, okay, you know, him and Billy aren't getting along. I'm going over here. You know, who wants to go have a drink with me over here after the game? And Billy's doing the same thing and taking his boys. How detrimental that would have been. Yeah. And But I don't think that there was ever a day where they were like that you're running me through some things I've never even thought of. <laughs> I
2: hope that's a good
0: thing. I hope that's a good thing. It is. No, it's very good. So, and I read this, but I don't know how reputable it was, that um, when Cal Sr. was let go, Billy switched to Cal Sr.'s numbers because he couldn't bear to watch somebody else possibly wear it. Um, one, if that's true, does that kind of say what kind of guy Billy is? Um, and two, I guess, did it actually happen that you know of? I don't know if it happened. Um, I think it was from three to seven, from number three to number seven, but I'm not sure about that.
1: I don't – well, I'm I'm trying to think. This Cal senior came back to us as the coach. The next year, I think. Um, Yeah, I think it was in 90. I don't think it was 89. Okay. I'm trying to think, though. Um, I, I know he
0: coached third, and I think before he was a bullpen coach. So he did a little bit of everything. Like you said, he's a baseball lifer.
1: Yeah, I don't. I, I can't tell you if Billy switched numbers, but I, I wouldn't be shocked. That's the type of guy he is. Um, you know, he had he had your back. He was just, yeah, he was that type of guy. I could see him. I could see him doing that because you know we, we talked about you know what kind of uh, I guess coaches' kids these guys were. They they loved their dad, and if their dad told them, you know, unlike my son's my son right now is 18 and got it all figured out cal senior told cal senior told cal junior hey you know you need to stick your finger out in your glove when you're doing a backhand i think junior would have probably said why and then started working on it you know so that that's the that's the way they looked at their dad
0: i think that's the right balance though not uh a deference in the way where you don't want to be part of the conversation, but at the same time being a good enough learner and um, having enough character to understand that somebody who's smarter than you is telling you what to do.
1: Yep. But that's, I mean, that's the way they looked at their dad, even when they're, you know, 28 and 26 and both in the big leagues. And he's, you know, he's a big league coach. Yeah, That's the way they looked at their dad.
0: So I want to talk about Buffalo in 95 before we jump to Cal junior. First of all, why was Billy in AAA? Because he had a pretty decent year. It wasn't a lot of playing for Texas the year before, but um you know, hit over 385 plate appearances and then Cleveland seems like a weird fit for him to sign with. Again, a job's a job and you got to take it if it's there. But I want to say he'd be behind Vizquel, Bayerga and maybe Travis Fryman for infield spots, uh maybe Alvaro Espinosa for utility. I'm I'm trying to remember who all would be on those teams, but um it seems like a weird fit for him but at the same time too it's probably going to make for good stories for us here for the next few minutes.
1: Um you know what so the story of I think I think the 95 team ended up winning the championship. It was a really good team but what John Hart who the general manager was he went while well, everybody's on strike. So we're on strike there's a whole bunch of guys that you know didn't have great years I knew um, from my side of it, I had, I had a bad year in 94. So I knew that I was going to be in the middle of just a huge glut of free agency as soon as the strike ended. Mm-hmm. And so everybody else, I assumed if they were intelligent, knew the same thing. They weren't going to sit around and you're going to be a, a, a C-level free agent. And think that you're going to get picked up before camp starts or, you know, the season camp starts and then the season starts real quick and who knows what's going to happen. If you're a C-level free agent, you might be sitting there till May, June. So, John Hart, in his wisdom, went out and signed a whole bunch of guys like Billy, me, um, Joe Clink.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm trying to think. We had – we were just boat loaded in guys that were major league guys, Tori Lovello.
0: Well, what's fascinating, oh, not to interrupt, is there's 10 guys who were in their age 30 or older seasons and, and guys that big fans in the 90s would recognize. Casey Candel- Candeli, uh, Lloyd McClendon, Car- Carmelo it, yeah. Martinez, Rick Rona, Ruben Amaro, um, Luis Lopez – Billy Ripken himself, and then some young guys, too. I think Jeremy Burnitz at that point was kind of an up-down guy or you know maybe on the risk of being a, a 4A guy because he was blocked so much. But um, Brian Giles, David Bell, and then, yeah, the pitching staff. There's names both um, in terms of guys that became something, you know, uh, Chad Oje, Paul Shuey was a pretty good reliever, Jay, uh, Alan Embry, Danny Graves. Yeah. I mean, this team was stacked. And then, yeah, guys like uh, Klink and and you, and uh, Jim Poole, who were, I guess he was probably rehabbing, but um, just John,
1: a, John Farrell. Yeah,
0: yeah, just a fascinating dynamic, and, and there's there's little reason to wonder why you guys won um, 20 more games than you lost in the uh, uh, American Association that year.
1: Yeah, and so we had, you know, like you said, we had a group of young guys, uh, Be- uh, Giles, and Embry, and OJ, and then a bunch of old guys that were Trying to find a good spot to land. Everybody knew Cleveland was going to be good. And, yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of spots. But, I mean, from, from my aspect, I was looking at it and going, you know, they had uh, – Cleveland had Jose Mesa and a couple other guys, Austin Macker, mm-hmm. a couple of guys that had, you know, very short time in closing games. And, and Mesa had very little to no time. So I was looking at it going, man, if I can get myself right, I can be closing from the AL champions. Yeah. And, um, you know, and my gamble did not pay off because who knew that Mesa was going to have 50 saves and <laughs> do what he did that year. But that was why I jumped in because was, I was looking at it going, you know, I played with Jose Mesa in Baltimore. He wasn't that good, in, you know, three years ago, four years ago. Why am I going to think now he's going to be able to close for the 95 Indian? Right. So that was why I jumped on. I think Billy... I don't know. I don't know. Billy and John Hart went back, you know, into the Baltimore days. John Hart was the third base coach for the Orioles in 88.
0: Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I, I believe. Yeah.
1: There's a, there's a John Hart story in there. Um, <laughs> John Hart was selling weight equipment and was on a plane flight with Th- one of the GMs for the Orioles back in mid eighties. And I can't, I want to say Roland Heman, but I don't think that's it.
0: That's a, that's and a name though, that we'll have to talk about sometime.
1: Roland Heman. I think John so. Hart?
0: Well, both obviously. Roland oh
1: man. Um, yeah. There's another rabbit hole, but um, so apparently John Hart made such an impression on this general manager that they hired him as like a low a ball coach. And, mm-hmm. John Hart made his way up and, and he was, he was on the, he was the 88 third base coach, I believe when I got there. And then I don't know where he went after 88, but you know, next thing I know, 95 he's the general manager of the Indians. So that was, that was where Billy and John Hart started. I don't know if that had an effect on it or John Hart told him that, you know, somebody might be hurt. Who knows what we got, but, So that's where Billy and I ended up in 95 Buffalo, you know, making sure that each other, each of us got on the same plane that was going (laughs) to wherever we were
0: playing. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that from last week. Um, You guys arrived at Buffalo via different paths. You know, you were dealing with significant arm issues and, or had, you'd had them. Um, And we'll talk about that someday too, because obviously Tommy John surgery has changed a lot in the last 28 years, but, um how did this is going to be me having you kind of guess where he was at mentally but um how did each of you view being in AAA after having appreciable service time in the show again you more for comeback reasons billy more to stay in the game and find his next opportunity which i'm sure you were doing as, as well obviously but um it's got to be, you know, an adjustment and just kind of a, hey, this is hopefully just a stopover, but we got to ride this out as long as we can.
2: Well, that's
1: exactly it. It's a stopover. is the way you got to look at it. You're not looking at it as I'm on my way down. I'm never coming back up. Um, and, you know, the games feel like they don't mean as much when you're down there. So now you got to make it a personal a personal vendetta to come back to the big leagues, however you can get there. So you're trying to find an organization or a stop. And for me, it was, you know, that bullpen's wide open in Cleveland and they're going to be a good offensive team. They're going to need help. And I don't know why Billy, I never never did find out why Billy, you know, went there with, you know, like you said, Biscayle and Bayerga. It's a pretty solid middle infield. and Billy Mm -hmm. wasn't much of a third base, Billy didn't uh, get over to third base a whole lot. He was more of a second shortstop. Yeah. Um, but you know it was it was just like I said it was it was hard. It's it's hard to go from the major leagues to the minor leagues knowing it's because of your play. It's not because of, you know, somebody's got something or you're hurt or this and that. It was just just you're not as effective as you need to be and you're going to be here until you get, you know, your effectiveness back or you're not going back to the big leagues is exactly. And that's all it is. So it's a hard road. It, um, you hope that you got a guy or two that you can hang out with, that you can commiserate because it just, man, you go from the, you go from the best place in the world to play, which is whatever city you're playing in, in the big leagues Mm -hmm. to one step below that and you're, you know, carrying your own suitcases and you got 5.30 a.m. flights and you're playing, you know, you're playing somewhere at 7, you know, 7 p.m. after flying all morning and um, just a harder road. So I don't know where Billy's head was at. I know, you know, like I said, we were both checking out flights as we were walking down the... (laughs) the concourse of whatever airport we were in going, Hey, there's a flight to Baltimore and Billy would be like, don't let me get on it. I was like, all right, I got you, you know, or me, it'd be, you know, something might be jokingly Omaha. Yeah. If we weren't going to play there. Um, But that's just, uh, that's just baseball. You know, you get, you play that night and you're all locked in and do whatever you can do to win that game that night and, and play your best. And then, next morning or the next day you might be on a, you know, in a concourse somewhere else going, all right, going to Oklahoma city now and keep me off this plane. Uh,
0: I I had a podcast with a former twins pitcher, Cole DeVries, and he described the minor leagues as kind of weird because yeah, you want your team to play well, but playing in the playoffs means you're finding somewhere else to live and not be getting paid. And so um you know it's fun to win championships down there but it isn't maybe the the number 1 thing for guys who can't afford their own way uh, especially Cole as an undrafted free agent but also too the guys you're competing with are also the guys you're competing against for spots in the big leagues um especially especially you know you, you might be friends with the outfielders if you're an outfielder but when the call comes down that they need somebody that might be the guy that gets it over you um for you especially though how difficult was it to be maybe not a mentor necessarily because I don't want to say that you had to be that but even to just be a good teammate for a guy like uh you know Alan Embry who's got a sub one ERA and is just blazing a path through there and uh, you know eventually becomes a pretty good big league reliever or uh you know Paul Shuey had a really nice year and eventually becomes a, a fairly accomplished big league reliever or Jason Grimsley who pitched forever um how, how hard is that I mean it's a character thing I'm sure and it's a a human thing, but it's probably not the easiest thing.
1: No, um, it's, it's a character thing. It is. You can, uh, you can go both ways. I've had guys go both ways. You know, the guys in the big leagues will be a little bit more open to sharing because you know, you're helping my team win. And at some point, man, everybody's had somebody help them.
2: Mm-hmm. They
1: really have. So it's, it's hard it's hard to sit there and go, I'm not going to give you information because you might get called up in front of me. You know, it's just, it, I don't know why baseball's so good about that, that you, you share, you pass it down, you pay it forward, whatever, whatever it is. And I can't think of one guy that ever didn't talk to me,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, even guys, even guys on other teams. I mean, I, I went up to Jeff Reardon and was asking him questions just because I didn't have a, I didn't have a closer when I was in the big leagues in 89 as a rookie. And I feel like I'm drinking out of a fire hose and I didn't have, <laughs> you know, a closer to go, Hey, you know, am I supposed to be just so nervous that I'm about to throw up and like about the eighth inning? He goes, yeah, that's normal. I'm like, Oh good. I was getting worried. Um, so now guys, it's just, it's one of the great parts of the game guys share and so I, I had no problem with Embry, Shuey. The guys that maybe don't want to share won't just offer information,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know. Um, but if you're asked, it's it's 100%. You'll, you know, you, you give what you got. It's just the guys that necessarily are, are kind of playing the game that you talked about where you're helping somebody that you're in competition with. Those guys just might not be as willing to offer help you know what i'm
0: saying yeah yeah that makes sense um when when did we're gonna shift to cal here for the last 15 minutes or so when did um when did you first become aware of cal's junior because when he debuted in the big leagues i want to say you were probably about 15 years old so obviously a fan slash sophomore or freshman in high school um and obviously have no idea that someday it would be your teammate for a half decade or so but um when were you first aware, and what were your first impressions of him?
1: I really wasn't. Um, you know, it's funny. I go back to the days where I was I was getting ready to get drafted, and we're you know playing in Auburn and had a guy that was a teammate that came from Baltimore named John Gast. Good, good, good dude. You know, he was a freshman. I was a junior, and he knew exactly where Baltimore was. A huge Orioles fan. And he knew where both i mean, where Baltimore was on the draft. So he's like, "Going, you're going to Baltimore. You're going to Baltimore." And he started telling me about Cal Ripken Jr. And just for you know the sake of giving him grief back, I was like, "I'm not going to Baltimore. I don't care. Baltimore stinks." You know, obviously <laughs> Baltimore was 0 and 20, Baltimore was 0-21 to start that season. So I had a little bit of um, grief that I could give back.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But I, I really didn't know a whole lot about Cal Ripken until. I actually got there, met him in person, saw the way he went about his business on a day-to-day basis. Um, and there's just, there's, there's nothing that's been said about him that, that isn't true. He's a great guy. He's a great teammate. He works harder than everybody else. He's like a giant kid that just wants to, everything, everything was a game. It wasn't, There wasn't one day in my whatever, five and a half years in Baltimore that I was a teammate with Cal that there wasn't a game being played in the clubhouse that he wasn't in the middle of that was remarkably, I don't know, childlike. It was just, (laughs) you know, oh,
0: man, we could go, let's see. I heard he was a prodigious wrestler in the like uh, he could he could lick just about anybody wrestling in the clubhouse but i don't know again if that's a reputable story
1: that is true that okay. is true he would uh, there there would be some good wrestling matches uh batting practice was a game he and I, I would sit at shortstop with him and he'd be he'd be getting his ground balls in the first or second group of batting practice and and he and i'd be playing a game on you know how many hops would be coming in or if the guy at the plate, you couldn't watch If the guy at the plate, hit a home run during batting practice. You know, we'd be, we, there there was always a game. (laughs) I love it. Um, in the Metrodome, it was how many, how many steps he could get to get out of the Metrodome and up, up to the stairs. (laughs) That, that, that one's a good one. That one might be legendary because apparently it was something, it was something stupid, like eight
0: wow you know? that's so, a that's amazing yeah
1: yeah you got to understand if you know you guys are listening to the podcast that it, it's what do you think about three three-story climb of stairs going from the field to the clubhouse
0: yeah and they're all different shapes and sizes you're gassed by the time you get up there even if you're a world-class athlete and you 100% don't want to leave your spikes in your locker because uh you might want oh, to have no, a, you couldn't go back. send out a search party for you to, <laughs> you know, that's where the clubbies probably lost all their weight was going back and getting stuff because what a, what a climb that was.
1: Um, It was, it was three stories. It was, it was, uh, you know, a whole bunch of steps and just about three, I think two or three landing. Oof. So it was, um, yeah, it was a hike. So he would, you know, he would, he would race Brady Anderson up the stairs and see how, how few steps he could get in going up. Uh, everything, everything was a game. That's what he was, and so yeah, he could he he would wrestle anybody in the clubhouse and, and win, and not get hurt, which is more important. Yeah. Um, the tape the tape ball games that I missed every one of the tape ball games that they had at the Metrodome after the game with the Twins would end, and most of the boys that would stay around knew that they had just to wait until the Metrodome cleared out and anybody that was doing any cleaning or security guarding or anything had left. And then they would play a tape ball game against the clubhouse kids for the twins that were the visiting probably in and home. And what was it? I think um, second base was home plate and they would, they would wad up a piece of the white athletic tape. Mm-hmm. And if, if, you know, and the Orioles guys had to hit opposite handed. And you try to hit the ball out of the park and hit it into the stands, which there was some big nets. So mm-hmm. these guys would be playing. These guys would be playing this game till two in the morning. <laughs> um, and it was all. It was always Cal. It was, everything was a game. There was always a game somewhere. And so that was who Cal was.
0: I want to leave this as open ended as possible, so you can take it as you will. Uh, what kind of leader was he, as far as quiet, uh, loud when he needed to be, and how tough was that for you to gauge? being in the bullpen. I I mean, I assume you probably started the game in the dugout made your way out to the bullpen eventually, but, um, how disconnected can you be from what kind of leader he was and and what did you see?
1: Um, I don't, he wasn't, he wasn't the guy that would, you know, if you didn't get a butt down or you had a poor effort or you weren't hustling, he, he wasn't, he wasn't the guy to light you up. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, you know, had a a guy or two that would do that and had no problem doing it. He wasn't that guy. He was, he was a guy that led by playing hard every day, being out there every day, working at his craft every day. That was what he, that was how he led. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't his dad where, you know, like I said, if you didn't hustle out a ball, he'd light you up. That was, that wasn't Cal. Cal was just, I'm here every day. I'm working my butt off every day. I expect you to do the same. And so that was Cal. Um, I never, I, I didn't, I, I didn't spend any first innings in the dugout mm. because, um, my bullpen coach Elrod Hendricks told me I couldn't.
2: <laughs> and
1: at the point, at the point that I was a closer with the Orioles for the first time, I was 22 years old. So I wasn't about to squawk and fight no. over something like that. Um, so I really I – di- I didn't see a whole lot of the dugout goings on other than maybe Oakland where, you know, we could sit in the dugout a little bit or Detroit. So Cal's, you know, leadership was more in the clubhouse, more ac- actually on the field. And so he just – he took care of his business and he expected you to do the same. And if you didn't, then he would take care of it. It wasn't always him.
0: What what do you think was the biggest pressure in his career? I, I think I probably know, but between playing at home in your home backyard, playing for your dad or in the same organization that your dad forged a significant path, or just the streak, which obviously uh, you know Lou Gehrig carried a lot of weight in the game, um, you know before Cal was born and all that. But uh, how, how what what was the biggest pressure for him, and, and how did you see him handle it?
1: You know, I I don't know. I don't know what his biggest pressure was. I didn't see him – I never really saw him under duress. I think more – it was more – and I I talked about, you know, the way he likes to play the games, and he's so competitive. I think his pressure and stress came from, you know, knowing that he probably needed to carry the team Mm -hmm. as much as he could on his back if they were going to be any good. And the night-to-night, you know – in-game pressure of just we have to win because that's what we have to do. I don't think there was. I, I didn't. I never saw it. You know, coming from his dad. Uh-huh. I never. I never saw. I never saw any stress from the streak. You know, I mean, I, I, I saw him get hurt once or twice where it was. It became a in jeopardy thing. But I never saw him stressed out or taking the stress out on like a trainer for not getting him completely ready. You know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, yeah. we won't, I'm not gonna belabor a lot of the points on Cal that people might expect because, um, you know, when the when the streak stopped, you guys weren't teammates anymore. It sounds like you guys may have still been close, of course, but um, th- there'll be a lot of things that we can maybe touch on again another time as far as uh the towards the end of his career, you know, moving to third base for, I want to say it was Manny Alexander, but I can't say for sure. Um, you know, he went through a lot of things too at the end of his career that will career that will um uh, that we'll touch on, but do you, do you recall, like, by the time you got there, the streak was a thing, um, the innings streak had ended, I think, earlier, no, uh, oh, the and streak yeah, was still going on, okay, it was, was, the, there, it was yeah. the end of that year, wasn't it,
1: oh, man, I thought it was, uh, I thought
0: it was, like, 90, oh, it might have been, it was 8,243 innings, which is just astonishing, yeah. but, um, at, at that point, obviously he wasn't close to the gehrig number. He was still about uh you know five, six, whatever years away. Uh, but I mean, it, had it gained notoriety nationally that he was doing something like this?
1: um I think it was discussed a little bit you know, yeah. and a lot of it was it was kind of comical. I mean, yeah he, he was the mVP in ninety one for our last place team, which didn't happen very often right uh, uh, but you know if if he went on he went into a slump which everybody in major leagues do does he went into a slump you could you could hear the talk shows and all the talking heads around the area going he just needs to take a day off the streak is stupid and <laughs> i'm just going you know what he can go over 20 but what he means to the team on the field at shortstop is more than his over 4 right and so it w- it was kind of comical to listen to because that's what a lot of the baltimore talking heads and, and some of the, the the call-in shows would be like if he would just take a day off this is just stupid you know that was that was what the streak was kind of going at when i was there nobody nobody thought it a great idea everybody thought it was you know just going to blow out at some point and, and he's never going to reach that number and he right. ends up getting to it. And I think September of 95 while I was in Kansas city. Mm-hmm. Yep. That
0: sounds right. Um, two quick ones before I let you go. How, how have you guys kept up both you and uh, Cal and Billy since leaving the game? Cause you know, you said you still consider them friends. I assume you keep up uh, on a fairly regular basis.
1: Yeah. Um, well, you know, we just, I haven't talked to Billy for a while. We had 89 reunion. We had a 90 Orioles do a nice job of having a reunion for Mm -hmm. something. So 92, we had the reunion for Camden Yards. Um, So there'll be something that, you know, every other year now that COVID, I don't know, but every other year we'd end up going back and I'd see Cal and Billy and we'd catch up and it'd be like old times, but Cal and I, um, Talked a little bit earlier this year. I was, I, I, I had prostate cancer.
0: Yeah, I saw something. Like that. I, I, I'm sorry to hear that.
1: Yeah, uh, it's all right. I had, um, I had the prostate removed in late April, and have uh, already taken the test and then cancer free. But awesome. Cal had almost a year before had um, the same thing. Had his prostate numbers, the PSA numbers go up. And so he and I touched base a couple of times because he had gone through and got the procedure done. And he was just, he was helping me out and we talked for about an hour and he was just like he was when he played very analytical and, mm-hmm. you know, done his research and thought everything out. And, and, um, so we've talked a little bit since then. Uh, he's just, yeah, when you play with guys like that, it, it you don't always stay in touch. Baseball guys don't stay in touch very well. We kind of, uh-huh. get out of the game. And unless you see guys on a regular basis, then you don't really, uh, you know, check in all the time. But when you see them after a year or two years, it's, it's the same thing. You know, nothing, nothing changes. You check in, you ask how their kids are and you know, it's like you just kind of pick right back up.
0: I love it. Well, last thing we got before we let you go for the the week here. Huh? How surprised were you that Cal wasn't a unanimous Hall of Famer? I mean, I I I don't get all tied up in that, but at the same time, too, I feel like, you know, obviously, Mariano Rivera was the first one. If anybody was going to be one from that era, Cal, to me, kind of feels like it would have been the right move to to have happen.
1: Uh, that, you know, that, that part of the, the Hall of Fame stuff, I, I really... I hate. I absolutely hate that somebody mm-hmm. feels like, Oh, you know what, we can't have a unanimous Hall of Famer, so I'm not make, I'm 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 gonna take it upon myself. It's like just make your vote. Who's yeah. a Hall of Famer, who's not a Hall of Famer?
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, most of these guys, Rivera deserve to be a Hall of Famer, Cal deserves one hundred percent. Yep. I just it's just some of the stuff that goes on behind the scenes, I think uh that'd be kind of fun to uh, you know what? Give me the uh, get <laughs> off my lawn, get off my lawn guy speech here. And yeah. you know what? If I fi- find out you didn't vote for uh, Craig Biggio because he didn't talk to you after one game, you know what? You just lost your vote. You're done.
0: You're yep. out. Smack him upside down. You know, head.
1: something like something. Yeah, something like that would be really fun. You just That's a two-year hiatus. You're out. Yeah. You know, just to Paul Molitor or any of those guys, mm-hmm. that doesn't get voted in right away. It's like going, you're out. Yeah, I'm sorry, you lost your vote for being stupid. But, again, there I go down my uh, down my get-off-my-lawn thing.
0: Well, we won't let you go too far down that rabbit hole this week. Maybe next week we will. I'm still working <laughs> through some ideas as far as All what right. we're going to do. And so uh, thank you again to Hinterland Coffee, Three Star Sports Cards, and Humility Chains for sponsoring the show powered by Access Twins. Uh, Again, thank you so much for a a great episode this week, Greg. Uh, The Ripken family has given a lot to the game, and I think it was only fitting that we gave them a little over an hour of uh, love because uh, they're they're just that impressive. They're that impressive. So, again, um, thank you so much, and we'll be in touch. We'll talk again soon. And so until next time, thank you for listening to That 90s Baseball Pod with Brandon Warren and Greg Olson.